Today we're going to talk about ancient law, ancient laws, and uh, I can't think of a more fun subject that we could talk about today than the old covenant laws and uh, ancient laws and what's going on here in Exodus. Um, so I'm going to try to make this as painless as possible today, um, but it's going to get worse as we go along and uh, in, into the Pentateuch. But uh, when we start talking about laws and the Old Testament laws, that's certainly probably, you know, we probably haven't enjoyed reading in Leviticus for our devotional studies, uh, you know, lately. But Exodus begins here in this section of establishing and giving the law as God gives the law to his people. And in giving the law, he's making covenant with his people. So the whole point of the Exodus was to bring them out that they would meet with God. If you remember back in the early uh, chapters of Exodus, uh, after God meets with Moses at the burning bush, they, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they ask him to let my people go that we may worship in the wilderness and meet with our God Yahweh uh, for three days in the wilderness. So now they have left Egypt after all the plagues and everything. They have now left Egypt and they have come to Mount Sinai where Moses had previously met with God to receive the call to meet with him or God uh, met with him from a burning bush. So this is a place where Moses has already been, and now he's gone back to Egypt, he's led the people out, and now they've come to Mount Sinai. And uh, we looked last week kind of about where their journeys was and where Mount Sinai was. So the purpose of God bringing his people to Mount Sinai was that he could meet with them, and that he would meet with them, that he would make covenant with them, and eventually bring them into their own land where they would live in relationship to God through this covenant. And living in relationship to God through this covenant, they would be His special people. They would be His holy people, a kingdom of priests, uh, that they would be an example to the other nations around them. And this scene here that we're going to see, and then the chapters after this, is going to be the time when they are um, truly instituted as a nation, truly instituted as a special people of God. Uh, so we're going to begin in 19 today, and here's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to look through chapter 19 to see what's going on there. Chapter 19 is the preparation for giving the law. Um, and then before we jump into chapter 20, we'll get in there next week to actually get into the actual Ten Commandments and then the uh, books of the law that we see in chapters 21 through 24. Uh, before we get into those chapters, we're, I want to give an introduction to the law, an introduction to laws uh, in general and how we are to view the law, how we are to approach these laws, and even as Christians today, how we relate to the law, for there's much confusion, and we're going to cover some of that today. But I really felt just to give time to this introduction, number one, because when I started writing notes for the introduction, it kept getting longer and longer and longer and longer, and I said I have to stop right here. And secondly, because law was a different genre of writing. As we talked about before, the Bible is made up of a lot of different genres of writing. Uh, there's, we've seen poetry. Uh, we have seen narrative. Most of what we've read up until this time has been narrative. And there's a certain way that we read the narratives and interpret the narratives in the Bible. Uh, then we get to prophetic literature. When we get to the prophets, uh, we need to learn how to read the prophetic literature, what that is, what that is not, uh, the wisdom literature of 
you know, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Uh, and then we go into the Gospels and the Epistles. When we went through the Epistles last year, we talked about how we interpret the Epistles because it's a different form of literature than the other parts of the Bible. So that's what makes the Bible so interesting is that it's made up of a bunch of different writing styles. So when we get to law, we need to understand what we're reading uh, because it can get pretty tedious when we try to read through all of these laws because nobody likes to pick up a large set of laws and just read through laws um, all the time. So we want to talk about what it is, how to read it, how to interpret it, how to apply it today, what does it mean today. So we're going to go through 19, and then we're going to give an introduction to uh, biblical law. The next week we'll pick up at the actual giving of the Ten Commandments and the laws to follow. Uh, Then after that we get into the tabernacle, takes up a lot of the uh, remaining chapters of Exodus. So let's pick up the story in chapter 19. In the third month of the Exodus... The Israelites arrive at the wilderness of Sinai and encamp at the mountain where Yahweh first called Moses at the burning bush. Here Yahweh makes covenant with Israel requiring obedience to a variety of laws and commandments in order to be blessed in the promised land. The covenant concluded at Sinai is referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. There's actually a lot of names. You know, we refer to today from a Christian viewpoint as the Old Covenant. We get that word from the book of Hebrews uh, when it says that Jesus brings in a new covenant. He makes the first old. Uh, so that's why we refer to it as the Old Covenant. That would probably be a pretty offensive term to practicing Jews today because they do not see uh, the Old Covenant as old. They see it as the covenant. Uh, and they wouldn't refer to it as the Old Testament for they see their, they see their scriptures as the Bible. Um, but we, from a Christian standpoint, refer to it as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. I was also referred to as the Mosaic Covenant because it was the covenant given to Moses to give to the people, and Moses was the mediator of this covenant, so we refer to it as the Mosaic Covenant. We also refer to it as uh, the Book of the Law because it contains uh, all of these laws that govern the nation of Israel, so we might refer to it as the Law of Moses. We might refer to it as just the Law. Uh, might refer to it as uh, the Torah. The Torah encompasses these commandments and all of the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Much of that is, contains law. So you might refer to it as the Torah. You might refer to it as uh, the Pentateuch. So there's a lot of different ways that we can refer to the law. So when we're speaking and we use those terms, the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses, the Law, uh, we're speaking of these stipulations and these commandments that were given to Israel at Mount Sinai that constituted them as a nation. Uh, The Mosaic Covenant is neither what we call unilateral uh, or unconditional. It was a bilateral covenant. That means God had a part in the covenant and Israel had a part in the covenant. Uh, It was a covenant that both parties had stipulations. Now this differs from the previous covenants we've seen. We saw the covenant God made with Noah. You know, I've set my bow in the sky, I'll never flood the earth again. That was a unilateral, unconditional promise. There was no stipulations they had to meet. Uh, It was not conditional upon anything, but God made that covenant. Uh, Even the uh, Abrahamic covenant, God was going to establish covenant with Abraham. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. Uh, Even though even though Abraham played a small part of that, that he had to you know, follow God, uh, that covenant was really an unconditional covenant. God was going to 
do it. Uh, this covenant here is unlike those covenants, and it's unlike the other covenants that we will see. The next covenant we will see is the Davidic covenant that God tells David, one of your offspring will sit on your throne forever and ever. That would be a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And then the new covenant, uh, which is really a covenant uh, between God and Jesus that we just happen to be that benefit from and are included in. Uh, that is a unilateral, unconditional uh, covenant that he makes. Uh, so the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, is bilateral. Israel had to live up to their end of the bargain, and then God would live up to his end of the bargain. So it was bilateral, and it was conditional. If Israel did not live up to their end of the bargain, then they would be punished. If they did live up to it, they would be blessed. So it was conditional upon their obedience to it. Um, it involves mutual obligation for both Yahweh and the Israelites. Uh, the Israelites do not meet their obligations. Israel can be expelled from the land which they were. Uh, Israel must fulfill her obligation by obeying Yahweh's Torah or instruction and living in accordance with His wills expressed through this instruction. Only, only then will Yahweh fulfill His obligations of protection and blessing toward Israel. So here's the main issue with the old covenant. God responds, He sets the rules, and God responds to how Israel keeps the rules. If they keep the rules, God would bless them. If they broke the rules, if they rebelled, if they did not keep their end of the bargain, then God would respond to their works. And so that's where we find this obligation from Israel into uh, the Old Covenant. So let's go to here in Exodus. This is the preparation of the law. Chapter 19 of Exodus is the preparation. Here we find several interactions between Moses and God. Uh, and then we find interactions between Moses and the people in preparation for God's visitation and blessing to, or, and the giving of the law. Here's what we're going to find in Exodus 19. All right, here's, here's a brief summary. Moses goes up the mountain. He comes down the mountain. He goes up the mountain. He comes down the mountain. He goes up the mountain and he comes down the mountain. And then God will call him up the mountain, just tell him to go back down the mountain. Uh, so we have a lot of mountain climbing here. Moses was probably in pretty good shape for a guy his, his age at the time. Um, but there are three encounters that we see in chapter 19. There are three encounters where Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and then he will come back down the mountain and meet with the people. And he does this three different times. So um, the first encounter... Moses goes up the mountain in verse number 3. He meets with God. Moses receives a message from God to give to the people. First, God will remind them of the grace and the status in which he brought them, that he granted them with these words. He says in Exodus 19 verse 4, You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God is reminding Moses to go and remind the people what God has already done for them. I brought you out of the land of, of Egypt. I bore you on eagles' wings. See what all I have done for you. So that's the first thing God tells him is he says, this is what I've done for you. And this is by my grace, by my goodness, by my delivering power. This is what I've done. Then he imparts the essence of the law to them. In Exodus chapter 5, he says, Now, if you obey me 
and keep my covenant. And he goes on to say, if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. You see the condition there. If you obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, if you keep my commandment, then you will be my treasured possession among all people. So we have God establishing what he did for the Israelites in grace. Now he's bringing them into covenant based upon their obligation. Um, Then Moses goes down the mountain and he reports what God told him. And the people respond by saying, we will do everything that the Lord has said. So they agreed to the basis of this covenant. Then we have the second encounter. Moses goes back up the mountain in verse number 8. And this time he is informed that God is going to come down and visit his people. He's going to come down in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and you will always, uh, and they will always put their trust in you. Moses then tells the Lord what the people said. Yahweh, that they will keep the commandments. Yahweh gives Moses instructions on how the people should consecrate themselves for this visit by God. For this is going to be a visit that they had never experienced before. They were to be extremely careful not to approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. The result of this would be death for man or animal that came too close to the mountain. Only with the long blast of the ram's horn may they approach the mountain. Also among the preparations, they were to wash their clothes and abstain from sexual relations. So God says, I'm going to come down. The people are going to come close, but not too close. You know, they're to prepare themselves. They're to abstain from certain things. They're to wash their clothes in order to meet with me. So in verse 14 of chapter 19, Moses goes back down the mountain to report to the people and to consecrate them. On the third day, the ram's horn sounded. There was thunder and lightning, and a thick cloud covers the mountain as Yahweh descended on it with fire. And the people uh, are led out from their camp toward the mountain, and they tremble with fear at the sight of it. So you have to get this picture you know, in your mind of what's happening here. There's lightnings and thunders and a thick cloud, and the people are afraid. God is coming down with a fire and smoke upon the mountain. They're warned if they get too close, then they will perish. And uh, So this is an awe-inspiring sight, and it's given to invoke fear into the people so that they will obey God. Uh, so then we have the third encounter, as the people have approached and they're trembling, In verses 19 through 25, God calls Moses again up to the mountain just to tell him to go back down and warn the people, don't get too close. (laughs) You know, so they're approaching. He says, Moses, come up. Moses climbs the mountain. He says, Moses, go back down and tell them don't get too close. Uh, And that's what he does. So he says, tell them not to force their way through to the mountain uh, in order to see him or else they will perish. Moses is then told to go and bring Aaron back with him. So Moses goes down in verse number 25 and reports to the people. So this is kind of a crescendo to this moment. It brings them to this holy mountain where God met with Moses in a burning bush, but this time the bush wouldn't be burning, the whole mountain 
would be burning as God descends upon the mountain. And there's thunder and lightning, uh, and it is a fearful, it is absolutely a fearful sight, and the people are afraid. So much so that later on, we are told that, that they told Moses, we don't want to hear from him anymore. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what they said. We don't want to hear from him anymore. We want him to talk to you and you to talk to us because they were totally stricken in fear and trembling at the sight that they had seen. So on the back of page one, this is, we want to make a few points here. First of all, the first point we want to look at is the Israelites were supposed to be or are to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. It's what God tells them in chapter 19, verse 6. We might say this is the very reason that Israel was delivered from Egypt. Priests mediate between the divine and the human. To be holy means to be set apart. So the people of Israel were to be set apart from all the other nations around them. God is keeping them at a distance because I am holy. I am set apart. There's a distinction between me, Yahweh, and you, the people. So that's why you can't approach me. That's why you can't get too close. That's why I appear this way to make you fearful because God is holy, meaning that God is set apart. Uh, and so the law would be given to make Israel a separate, set-apart people, that there would be a distinction between them and the other nations and their God and the gods of the other nations. So to be holy means to be set apart. Uh, Israel, if obedient to God, will be set apart to be a mediator between God and the other kingdoms. We see here the first buds of the seed planted in Genesis 12.3, where God promised Abram that through his descendants all the families of the earth would be blessed. So Israel was commissioned to be a kingdom of priests on the earth, being an example to the other nations. And this is Israel's true purpose. Uh, they are not an elite God club, isolated from the world. Rather, they are a people separated for the purposes of bringing the nations to a knowledge of God. Granted, as the Old Testament progresses, the goal rarely seems to be met, but it is the goal nonetheless. And at least here in Exodus, the people are agreeing to everything that God tells them to do. So the, the first thing we want to say is, God told Moses, if you keep my commands, you will be the special called out people to be a light to the other nations. And the second point here is the fear and the trembling. The fear and the trembling. Three days after their arrival, Mount Sinai is overwhelmed by God's presence. Thunder roars and lightning strikes, and a thick cloud, smoke, and fire consume the mountain and cover the mountain. The thunder is the voice of God. When coupled with the rising of the trumpet blast, the whole event must have been pretty unsettling. The emphasis here is God's holiness and separation from the people. God is kept at a distance, and the people must keep their distance or they will perish. The fact that the cloud and the fire were present, here's a little foreshadowing we're getting. The fact that the cloud and fire were present at God's presence, the law was getting to be ready to given, Aaron is summoned, summoned who Aaron would be the first high priest, along with the other consecrated priests. This all gives a foreshadowing and a connection between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. What happened in the tabernacle? You had the priests 
operating. You had the high priests that were working out the law. You had the tabernacle that would carry the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So cloud, fire, priests, law, uh, all of this is going to be a picture that will carry us through the wilderness wanderings. Uh, the Israelites need to learn what it means to be God's obedient people before they can enter their new homeland, the land of Canaan, which is currently occupied by Canaanites who have very different ideas about God's and worship. So to summarize that part up, God's bringing them into a land, and that land is going to be surrounded with other nations. Now, we've already learned from Genesis that the ancient Near East, all of the other nations had their own gods, their own way of worship, uh, their own values, and God wanted his people to be separate and distinct from the other nations. So that's one reason God is putting this display on for them so that they would fear and tremble that when they get into the land, they would remember their God and not give in to worship and to welcome the other gods and the other pagan influences into their nation. So uh, this was meant to kind of scare them straight from the beginning. Uh, to prove or to show them how set apart God is, how set apart they should be. And they're to carry this image all the way into the land that um, they would not give in to these other gods, which ultimately did not happen because they did give in to other gods. But this is obviously an awe-inspiring uh, or an all-fearful picture that we find here. So let's continue to talk about the law. So let's give our introduction to what is law, what are we talking about when we talk about law, and then to look at a couple of more distinctions. The purpose of Israel's redemption from Egypt was so that they can be God's special people, you know, a kingdom of priests, bound to Him by covenant. This covenant will be made up of various laws given to Israel to guide them as a holy people. So just as God is holy, set apart, separate from all the other gods, his people were to be holy, separate, set apart from all the other nations. All right, so the first thing that we see here is the Old Testament law is a covenant. I think I have seven things listed here. The Old Testament law is a covenant that was made. Now, a covenant is a binding contract between two parties, both of whom have obligations specified in the covenants. Now, what we find here in Exodus at the giving of the law and the laws itself and how the law is given is not unique to the story here in Exodus. And it's not even unique to the Israelite people. There are unique factors in it, and we'll look at some of those in a moment. But covenants were made all the time. Covenants between you know, a nation's God and, and their priest and the nation were made. There were many other laws. So what you have in a and there are also covenants made between people. And in the Old Testament times, covenant, there were covenants made between nations. Uh, so in the Old Testament times, covenants were often given by, I'm going to give you two terms. I don't know if you've ever heard them before. Maybe you have. But one is a suzerain. And a suzerain is like a king. A suzerain is a lord. He is, he is of greater status than what we would call vassals. Vassals are the servants, or vassals would be the common people. So let's say you were Egypt, and you were the Pharaoh. And of course, you were a large nation, you were a great nation, 
And there are other nations around that they may have some things you wanted to benefit from. Maybe they had food that you needed. Maybe they had oil that you needed. So you would enter into a covenant with them. And the covenant would be made between you as Pharaoh, who is the suzerain, with the vassal, who would be the weaker nation beside of you. For you can provide things to them. You can provide them resources. You can provide them protection so that another nation doesn't come and overtake them. So you will defend them. You will provide for them on the basis that they do some things for you. And that's what's happening here. So what we see pictured in Exodus is a picture of covenants that were made in the ancient Near East. God would be the suzerain. He would say, you will be my people. I will provide you blessings. I will provide you protection. But you must keep some stipulations to me. So the all-powerful suzerain would make a covenant with the dependent vassal or servant. The suzerain guaranteed benefits and protection. In turn, the vassal was obligated to be loyal to, solely to the suzerain with the warning that any disloyalty would bring about punishments as specified in the covenant. So there would be blessings for the vassal if they kept the covenant. There would be curses or punishments for the, for the vassal if they broke the covenant. Um, a covenant put in place is a relation, uh, put in place a relationship, in Israel's case, a relationship with the one true God who alone could save and sustain them. So the rules were very important. No rules, no relationship. As long as the vassal kept the stipulations, the suzerain knew that the vassal was loyal. But when the stipulations were violated, the suzerain was required by the covenant to take action to punish the vassal. So it's this covenant between a greater and a lesser or their stipulations, and then blessings and curses. So again, this idea of covenant is not new. It happened in the ancient Near East. The idea of law is not new. Through archaeology, we have found many different law codes from other nations. Um, we have down here uh, Sumerian. We have Sumerian law codes, uh, Babylonian law codes, one of the great uh, most famous Babylonian law codes is uh, the Code of Hammurabi. And my daughter was even learning about that in the, the, the Hammurabi Code of Babylon. Uh, there's also codes uh, from, the, there's treaties and covenants from Hittites and Assyrians. So this idea, it's not like nobody ever had a law that said don't murder. You know, those, that was a common law. Uh, in the Old Testament. So it's not like this is the first time anybody in the world had ever heard law. It was this is Yahweh's distinct law given to Israel the way that Yahweh would have them to live, which we find similarities to other nations, but we also find extreme differences from other nations. And we'll look at some of those in a moment. But our next page we see the pattern of these covenants. There are six major um, parts to an ancient covenant or an ancient treaty. And these would define and outline this covenant. So there are six major parts. Number one, there's a preamble. This is where the suzerain would identify himself. I, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Well, here in Exodus, chapter 20, verse 2, 
we have, I am the Lord your God, or I am Yahweh your God. We have a preamble. The suzerain identifies himself. Then we have a historical prologue. Usually there's a little bit of detail as to what brought these two parties together. Well, here in Exodus chapter 20, we have a little bit of the historical prologue. We have some of that in chapter 19 as well. You know, when I bore you on eagle's wings, I brought you out of Egypt. So in chapter 20 of Exodus verse number 2, he says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that, while we may just read that as words, that was actually a part of these ancient covenants that would come. There would be a historical prologue. Then the third thing that would come in these covenants are stipulations and requirements. And these are the individual laws. So after, um, in chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. So now we start having the laws. Now we start having the stipulations. Uh, number five, uh, there would be, or number four, there would be arrangements for public reading of the treaty and its safekeeping. Usually what would happen is there would be two copies of the covenant made. One that the suzerain would keep and one that the vassal would keep. And usually they would put it in a sacred place, usually in the temple of their gods or in the palace for, you know, in the king's that would be for safekeeping, that they would go back and they would reread these covenants every so often. Well, we, find, we don't find it here in Exodus, but we find in Deuteronomy 17, the rereading of the covenant. We find in Deuteronomy 31, where Moses gave a copy to the priest, and they took the copy of the law, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping. Uh, and that's what we see happening here. So that is a symbol of the treaty, the covenant, that was made between God or Yahweh and his people Israel. Interestingly enough, um, you know, when Moses brings the Ten Commandments down, they, they're written on two tables of stone. Well, you know, when growing up in church, we always think there's five on one, there's five on the other, you know, pretty simple. You know, it doesn't say what's on those two stones. It could be five on one, five on the other. It could be eight on one and two on the other. Maybe they ran out of room. I don't know. Or maybe all of them is written on one and all of them is written on the other. And there's these two copies like we, that would normally happen in the ancient Near East. All those are possible explanations. But we do know the ark was kept safe, or the tablets were kept safe in the ark. Uh, number five, witnesses. There would usually be witnesses. Uh, they would call, nations would call upon their gods as witnesses to the binding oath. What we find in the Hebrew scripture here, we find that the Lord himself, and sometimes he calls heaven and earth, as a way of saying all of God's creation, uh, is a witness to the covenant, as in Deuteronomy. And then there are blessings and curses. Uh, blessings for the party who obeys and curses for the party that violates the pact. Uh, a lot of, there are a lot of curses written in the Assyrian treaties. But we find in Leviticus 26, and especially in Deuteronomy 28, we find the blessings and curses of the law. The blessings and curses of the law. And again, that was a common treaty. So what we have here is when you put all the pieces together, when you look in, you know, in Exodus through Deuteronomy, you see 
these stipulations, we see the preambles, we see the prologues, we see this is an ancient covenant that was made between Yahweh and the people of Israel. Now, as we did mention, there were other law codes. Um, Hammurabi was one of them. That was the Babylonian king. Um, his was probably the most famous. Uh, going back to about the 18th century is his uh, law code. And there are similarities between Israel's law code and these other law codes. Um, Hammurabi being one, other Sumerian codes, Hittite codes, which again, as we've talked about, gives critics, you know, kind of uh, ammunition against the Bible by saying, well, you see, Moses just copied everybody else. Well, not really. Not really. Uh, Even though, yes, we believe that God gave Moses these laws. Yes, a lot of these laws, you know, are not uncommon that you would find in the the time and the place where Israel was. Uh, For example, in Hammurabi's code, um, it says, if a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out, which that is the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand that we find in Exodus 21. Uh, Then in uh, another code, we find the man who committed uh, the murder will be killed. This compares to the Mosaic law. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. I mean, so there are similarities. You know, even though we're living in the ancient Near East, you know, you didn't murder people and get away with it. You didn't steal from people and get away with it. There were laws that governed all of the nations. So just as there are similarities, there were also differences. There were major differences. Uh, the Hammurabi Code uh, often determined punishment by your social status. So if you were in a higher class and you committed a crime or you transgressed the law, your punishment would be less if you were down here on the social end of the spectrum. That's the way it is today. Well, yeah, in a lot of cases, that's the way it is today. Yeah, whoever's... You got enough money and status, you can buy your way out of anything. Absolutely. So that, but that was written into the law, you know, that if you were this status, this would be your punishment. If you were here, this would be your punishment. Um, the law of Moses didn't do that. It was, the punishment was determined by the crime committed, no matter who committed the crime. So that was one of the differences that you find between God's law and the law of the other nations. Um, another difference that you would find here um, is that in other ancient Mesopotamian laws, um, the crimes committed against human humanity were punished with fines, but crimes committed against property were punished by death. That in, in some nations, they held property as more valuable than human life. Uh, but that was the other way around in the Mosaic law. Crimes against people were punishable by death, and crimes against property were punishable by fines. Uh, under the Mosaic law, um, slaves, you know, even though we would... Obviously, our modern world looked down on slavery and owning other people, which is another critical aspect that people come against the Bible, where God endorses slavery. Um, you know, well, you can't escape that there was slavery in the ancient world. There's been slavery since the beginning of time in just about every ancient civilization. Um, you know, we would view things different today, and I think in a, in a good way. But even in the context of the ancient Near East, where you know things like this happen. What you find is that the Mosaic Covenant treated 
particularly slaves and women, more humane than other nations. Slaves and women were too, you know, and even children were some of the least of the least people. And it really didn't matter what you did to them in other nations. In fact, you know, if you know, I have a daughter, well, in, in other nations, if I committed a crime, I could have my daughter killed instead of me. And that would be acceptable according to the law. Well, under Moses said the children will not be put to death for the sins of their parents. So, so the Mosaic Code, you even see, even in the midst of some laws that we would look at, that we would be like, oh, that's, that's really bad from our perspective today. It's more humane than some of the laws that were governing the other nations. You do see a distinct difference. So ethically, the Old Testament law represented a quantum leap above other such codes around them. Um, so that's kind of a difference between the law codes. So even though there are similarities, and what we find here in Exodus is not totally distinct and at certain aspects it is separate and uh, ethically um, better than what we find in the pagan world. Number three, and this is to um, ah, really Michael? Okay. Take a breath. All right. Because this is like I would camp out for 30 minutes, but I've camped out in 30 minutes every anything else I've said today. So, uh, For Christians, all right, let's just touch on this. For Christians, the Old Testament law covenant is not our covenant, period. Okay? Um, that needs to be fundamental in every church. Um, and again, that comes from, this is the Word of God, this is God's Word written to us, read it, keep it, and do everything that it says. Um, we need to interpret. There's a reason there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. There's a reason that there's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. Yes, the Old Covenant is basically Israel's history and story and their scriptures. In the Gospels, we see Jesus coming in, and then in, from His death into the book of Acts, we see things are changing. We're seeing God's covenant is changing. We're seeing that no longer is God dealing in just with a national ethic, uh, you know, ethnic people, Israel. Now He's welcoming in Gentiles by faith, and now things are different under the new covenant, including Jews and Gentiles, apart from the stipulations, and the covenant in Exodus. Um, that should be fundamental. That's Christianity 101. Um, so the Old Testament law covenant is not the Christian's covenant. Um, the Old Testament represents God, God's previous covenant made with Israel. That's what we have to understand. The Mosaic covenant is a covenant made with a nation to govern them as a nation. Um, the previous covenant made with Israel, Mount Sinai, um, which is one we as Christians, you know, I, I got the wording from, from a book, are no longer obligated to keep. We were never obligated to keep. Christ fulfilled the law. In fulfilling the law, He took it out of the way he didn't come to abolish it without fulfilling it. He fulfilled it 
Then he took it out of the way and instituted a new covenant. This covenant was given to Israel. The old covenant was given to Israel as a nation, not to the church and not to any other Gentile nation. God didn't go to the Canaanites and say, here's my covenant. You need to keep it in order to be saved. He didn't say that. He didn't go to the Hittites and say, y'all need to sacrifice this. No, this was for Israel. This was for their covenant that would make them distinct from the other nations. Therefore, we should not assume that the old covenant is binding in any way for us today. Uh, We should assume, in fact, that none of its stipulations laws are binding on us. But here's the key. Unless they're restated in a different manner under the new covenant. Um, so here's, here's some things. Okay, if we don't have the law, then we can just be lawless. It's like, come on, really? Um, yeah, even though, you know, the, the Old Testament stipulations and, you know, yeah, God's not approving murder now that we're under the new covenant. I mean, come on, you know, um, you know, God isn't sanctioning adultery because we're no longer, because we're not under the, the old covenant. In fact, the new covenant is even on another level than the old covenant. We have to understand that. So Christians are not lawless. All right. Here's where we find our ethical mandates from. Under the new covenant, we've been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is to guide us and to lead us into all truth. And the Holy Spirit writes God's law, the Spirit of God's law, on our hearts. The Holy Spirit is to the believer, to the Christian, what the old covenant law was to Israel. It guided them as a nation in their ethics, in their worship in the way they treated one another. The Holy Spirit, God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. The Holy Spirit guides the believers in our ethics, in our worship, how we treat others. So in the new covenant, the emphasis is that we are fulfilling the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 that the letter kills. I mean, we see that immediately in the giving of the law. But the Spirit gives life. The law made demands, but the law never supplied the power or the ability to meet those demands. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do what the law could never do. And that was to bring about true righteousness. Where the law says, do not commit adultery, the Holy Spirit empowers us to be free from the lust that leads to adultery. The law had to do with people's outward acts and behavior to keep them in check, just like the laws of our land do. It's no different than the laws of our land. It was to keep the people's behavior and outward actions in check. The New Testament, the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit is concerned about changing the heart of people. Where God promised, I will take the stony heart out of you. 
He told the Pharisees, he said, you know, Moses allowed you to get divorced because your hearts are hardened. But he says in the new covenant, I will take out the stony heart, the hard heart, and give you a heart of flesh, a heart just like mine. So where the law says not to murder, the Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome hate that leads to murder with love. So that's, and there's so, so, so much I could say on that of how Paul in the New Testament views the law. Um, but even though the Old Testament laws are not our laws, it would be a mistake to conclude that, you know, and here's another thing, where you're anti-law, the, the term is anti you're anti-law, you just, you just want to throw it out of the Bible. No, we don't want to throw it out of the Bible, we want to properly interpret it. So it would be a mistake to conclude that the law was of no valuable, no, no value to the Bible. On the contrary, not only did it function in the history and salvation that led us to Christ, but without it, we would not be able to understand what it meant for Israel to be God's people. The whole Bible is God's word for us, even though everything in it is not directly commanded to us. There's much we can learn from the law. There's... You know, we don't throw things out of the Bible just because it's not a direct command to us. It's part of the Bible. It's part of the story of redemption. It's part of what we have. It is God's inspired word for us. But not every word in God's inspired word was, is a direct command to us or to all people in all times. So, yeah, we don't have to get up every morning and sacrifice a lamb and put blood over the doorpost. Why? Because that was spoken in a certain historical setting, in a certain historical time, for a certain purpose. And ultimately, it points to Christ, which is what all of this does. Um, number four, I want to get through this quick. I'll let you read this. Uh, number four, the Old Testament law was not a means of salvation. Uh, the, God saved His people when He delivered them out of Egypt. Uh, the law was never a means of salvation. When we come to the New Testament, there are people known as Judaizers, and they went to the church by saying, unless you are circumcised, unless you keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. You know, and that is what Paul came against so bad. But the law was never a means of salvation. God saved his people by grace, and the law governed them as a nation. Um, when you're reading the laws, there are two basic forms of laws, what we call apodictic laws. These are straight to the point. Do not steal, do not lie, do not kill, do not commit adultery. These are direct commands. Um, the other is casuistic laws. Casuistic laws are case by case. Uh, here, you know, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he has to serve you for six years. Then the seventh, he shall go free. If he comes along, he's to go free along. If he has a wife, he's to bring his wife. And it gives these case studies and these case by case laws, which is what you know, most of the law is. So there are two types of laws or basic forms of laws. The types of laws are moral laws or ethical laws, like the Ten Commandments. There are civil laws uh, that govern the affairs of property, disputes, things like that. You know, what if you build something on somebody else's property? You know, there are civil laws. Uh, ceremonial laws that governs the worship of God, the feast days, uh, the sacrificial laws, etc. And then uh, 12, uh, I took, or then number 7, I took these 12 um, out of a book, um, these are some good do's and don'ts, how to view the law, how to not view the law. Uh, you can read through some of those. This is basically things that we've talked about today. Um.